As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's move on right now, and we are guilty of this, and I am incredibly guilty of this. We look at Well, the joke of me going below 59th Street or the idea that most of our audience is in three zip codes and a couple in London as well. And we forget about the open plains. Mike Rounds knows where the Missouri River is. He knows that getting from Pierre, not Pierre, but Pierre, South Dakota, over to the Target store up I-29 north of Sioux Falls is actually something difficult to do. Ever more so at $5 a gallon gasoline. The senator from South Dakota, their former governor, joins us this morning. I want you to give me a visceral picture, real estate guy, of the emotion in Pierre and the emotion at that time. Target store north of Sioux Falls. What's going on out there away from the fancy people like Global Wall Street? I know you like dollars and cents. The average South Dakota family right now is paying over $604 more per month in living expenses than what they were in January of 2021. That's $7,000 plus per year more, and wages aren't going up that fast. When you start talking about that in places like South Dakota, the pain is real. And it's the same thing across the entire country. And the worst part about this whole thing is is this is policy-induced. When you start driving up the price of fuels, diesel, natural gas, and so forth, by policy determination, uh, and you start limiting the amounts of supplies that are being produced, and you recognize that uh, that you're doing it, and you do it anyway, then it's a policy-induced movement. We can do a lot to change that right now in the United States, and it's got to come back down to an administration recognizing that, uh, you know, look, I know they're fighting climate change, but the bottom line is you've got to have a strong economy to do a good job on that, and they are hurting this economy with their policies. And people in South Dakota feel that, and they're not happy about it. Senator Rounds, Gerald Ford of the Republican Grand Rapids, Michigan persuasion years ago said he was going to whip inflation now. What is the Republican prescription day one to stop this inflation? There are three parts to the policy. One is demand. You can do that through action at the Federal Reserve, but it's because we put a huge amount of cash into the economy earlier. Uh, And that was a president, that was a Biden decision, and he did it without the assistance of Republicans in January of last year. Number two, 
you have to reduce the cost of energy. And that means you produce more energy, all of the above. Uh, whether it be nuclear, whether it be more pumping, uh, it means more leases being released, and then allowing them to get that, that, uh, that uh, crude oil uh, out of the ground with additional licenses, and then allow them to be able to actually move that to the marketplace with pipelines. That would be an immediate thing. And finally, you have to address the workforce issues. Right now, and I know that this isn't a popular thing to talk about, but we have to have legal immigration reform. We need visas, we need H-2B visas, we need H-2A visas right now. And uh, we've got legislation in place right now that we're recommending that would do that. All of those would help to reduce inflation in this country and the effects would be immediate. Well, just to, uh, Senator, just to push back a little bit, you're talking about the uh, issues with certain policy prescriptions that led to the inflation. But a lot of this, a lot of economists say, is driven by some of the supply disruptions, whether it's in China or particularly the war in Ukraine. How much do you see as inflation staying high as a result of certain national security decisions being made that you've supported? Yeah, for, first of all, I, I, I think the actual inflationary trends with regard to the supply chains and so forth, a lot of that has to do with the cost of transportation of those items. Now, can you have supply disruptions? We had it. We had it during the previous administration. But you did not see that driving up inflation. You saw inflation begin almost immediately upon the recognition that we were going to have increases in the cost of energy within this country, and they were going to be increased by policy determination. Once again, if, if you take back and you look at the actual costs of energy and the impact that that has on all types of pricing for services and for products, it's a no-brainer that you can begin to reduce inflation if you well, address the cost of energy. It's in all okay. of those products. Aside from just the energy issue, though, I'm wondering, Senator, would you agree with potentially relaxing certain tariffs on China or perhaps uh, changing certain stances in order to reduce inflation domestically, even if on a national security level it was viewed uh, to be prudent to keep certain things in place? I think that there, there is always the possibility of looking at modifying policy with regard to needed items. But remember, there's a reason why we put those in place in the first place, and that was to try to develop domestic production. But if you can't do it domestically and you've tried it, then to look at other alternatives with other countries. It's not that we want to produce everything in the United States. We'd love to have good trading partners. But we also have to recognize that simply going back to China does not fit into the long-term scheme. And as long as they're going to try to continue to steal the IP in this country, we've got to continue to, to recognize the need for uh, uh, enforcement of trade deals and the limitation of trade with China whenever possible until they come around and recognize that they can't be stealing the IP, uh, the, the copyrights and so forth. So, yeah, look, I, I'd be very stingy about going back on what we've already done with China. I try to develop uh, some of those products, those product lines with our other allies and other people that literally want to do business with us under the rule of law. Senator, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Senator Mike Rance there on the story at DC and worldwide. Laurie Heinel joins us now, Global Chief Investment Officer of State Street Global Advisors. Laurie, you've got that big cash position. You can talk to us about how big that is. What are you waiting for to deploy it? 
Well, first of all, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. So I would say the biggest theme around our portfolios right now is less about the directional trade and much more about the relative value. So we've been trading around different markets, uh, deploying capital into the U.S., which we thought was still a bit of a safe haven relative to other regions, but also looking at places like commodities, uh, looking like at places like gold, and as you say, holding a bit of a 5% cash position right now. Laura, you are the perfect one to talk about. Right now, and folks, this is the esteemed chairman of Bloomberg, Peter T. Grower, telling me in times of stress, you see transactions and combinations. Kohl's is flat on their back. They have just announced, within all the troubles of Kohl's over decades, board thoroughly testing standalone strategic plan. Are we going to see one big roll-up, lorry of American finance and corporations out of these risks and challenges? Well, every situation is idiosyncratic. And one of the things that's striking about the recent announcements on the consumer side is that we've known for a while that consumers were likely to move from more goods-oriented purchases to more service-oriented purchases. And while we certainly have had some of the news out on on some of those uh, retail uh, franchises, the other side of it is you've got airlines and other service providers that are actually seeing very good demand and actually having some pricing power. So there's, it's not just a one size fits all. There's going to be a lot of idiosyncratic behavior and companies that can think about what their exposures are and how to hedge those and where they do have pricing flexibility or power. Those are the ones that are going to survive. I can't emphasize Lisa enough. The need here to be one size is wrong. Target 450,000 employees, Kohl's, 35,000, and yet people like to compare the two. They're completely different in the 10-year total return. Target gets it. Kohl's has been a disaster. Right. Uh, and we can talk more about the two distinct stories, but they're responding to the same macroeconomic backdrop. And Lori, when you take a look at this multifaceted backdrop that is not just one narrative, what gives you conviction that, frankly, the market is right, that the Fed is going to blink well before it raises rates to restrictive territory, which seems to be the zeitgeist right now in markets? Well, the big conundrum, as we've talked about and I've heard you talking about this morning as well, is that on the one hand, we still have inflation, which we could argue whether we've hit peak inflation or not, but the numbers are still quite eye-popping. We all know that eventually that wears itself out because the comps year over year get harder and harder, but that's happening at the same time that growth from a macro standpoint is slowing. And so this delicate balancing act is what the Fed's got to navigate, what all central bankers have to navigate, and everybody's afraid that they're going to get it wrong, and the chances are that they will get it wrong. Uh, we actually are a little bit more dovish in terms of what we think the Fed's going to do. And if they move in the summer and then actually do take a bit of a pause, then there's a chance that we get out of this without a recession. Laurie, thank you for your perspective, as always. Laurie Heinel there of State Street Global Advisors. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. 
alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is an example of what you're seeing on the street. He maintains outperform on target, but lowers the price target big time from a 305 down to 200. Those are the micro adjustments being made. Patrick Pelfrey is co-head of quantitative research and senior equity strategist at Credit Suisse and is looking at the macro adjustments. How are you using the micro changes of your sell side research team, Patrick, this morning? Well, when we talk with our analysts and we go through the transcripts and we look at where earnings estimates are moving, everything on the fundamental front seems very much intact. Uh, 2022 estimates continue to rise. There's certain sectors, communications in particular, which is seeing pressure. But generally speaking, estimates are holding up quite well, including revenues. Uh, margins a little bit less weaker, but, but still enough to propel right. the earnings forward in a meaningful way. We're, this is important, folks, because Credit Suisse hit the ball out. Suisse hit the ball out of the park 18 months ago with a wonderful barbell strategy of bullishness. Patrick, if you've got a constructive view like that, are we over focusing on margins and not looking at a pretty good or good revenue lift based on nominal GDP? Well, Tommy, I think you're absolutely right. Companies live in a nominal world. I know as, as economists, individuals like to talk about real activity and they like to piece out inflation, but companies for the most part don't really matter. They are oftentimes, in, in most cases, able to pass that on. And we're seeing that come through with revenues uh, this year expected to be plus 10%. That's an incredibly strong number. So with revenues that strong, there's an ability to give up very incremental margin to see the earnings picture still be up 8 to 9%. And that is spectacular uh, for this point in the cycle. What are you counting on in terms of rates to get you uh, to that level in equities based on the fact that not only do you have, yes, you've got the nominal growth, but you also have a re valuation based on higher inflation and, frankly, based on a Fed willing to raise rates much beyond what people had imagined a year ago? Well, it's, it's, it's a great question. And I think really what people are trying to understand, there's a lot of pieces moving around here. And our focus is really here on valuation. That's really where the biggest distortions were at the beginning of the year. We started with a 21.5 multiple. We're down to a 16.5. That's roughly in line with long-term averages. But more importantly, expensive companies were extremely expensive, and that's where all the pain has been. You see that in secular growth themes. You see that in technology, communication. When you look outside of those groups, valuations look a lot more reasonable. The pain looks a lot less uh, meaningful in those groups. This has been a valuation re-rating uh, because of higher interest rates. And that's a meaningful part of the discussion. Which sounds all very logical. And it's easy to then come on and say, look, if I like those stocks before they've been on sale, let's buy them. But it doesn't count for the behavior of investors who see their statements and say, holy cow, we've got to get rid of this. We've got to actually uh, start selling. We haven't seen those kinds of mass sales. How much of an overshoot to the downside could we see before we get to what you expect to be a rally? Well, I, I think we're pretty much getting close to that bottom now. 
uh, like like we've highlighted earlier in the show, 20% right now is really where the S&P is down. Historically, in, in bear, bear markets, we see it down a little bit more, but that tends to be recessionary. Right now, we have an incredibly strong economic outlook. Certainly, inflation is a concern, and I agree with that. But right now, nominally, GDP is expected to be 9% this year, with real GDP right. being 3%. That doesn't feel, uh, that doesn't feel uh, recessionary to me. This is really important, folks, what you're hearing here, this nominal versus real argument. Patrick, let's say we've got a nominal glide path. I'm going to call it harmonic. You go from 9%, as you state, to 4.5%. Maybe we get down to 2.25% at some point, Japan-like. But within that time frame, corporations adjust, and they adjust use of cash. What do you, as optimists, feel use of cash will be starting now, into the summer and into the budget outlook the corporations frame for 2023. Well, you know, companies are always very rational with how they deploy their capital. Uh, right now, we've seen shifts towards dividends. We've seen increasingly shift towards buybacks. We've also seen a shift towards CapEx. I think all three of those areas are going to continue to see growth. We're seeing areas like dividends and like and, and CapEx get rewarded a lot more than buybacks. So companies shifting that way are going to likely see better returns than perhaps going directly towards buybacks. But there's ample capital on many of these companies, particularly large cap companies, given how strong free cash flow is. And we expect them to continue to use that. Well, a ruder way to ask Tom's question is they can start to lay off people in order to save costs, in order to increase their margins, especially as you get the likes of Amazon and Walmart talking about how basically they have too many people paid too much based on the shift in, uh, in appetite by consumers. Well, I think as long as the demand is there, companies are staffing to meet the level of demand. They're not staffing to meet stock market gyrations. So, yes, the market's down, and I think investors are assuming that's going to impact companies' decisions. But a company doesn't say, I'm not going to meet your order because my stock is up 20%. They say, no, you want an order. I'm going to supply you with that order. Depending on how much demand declines from here, uh, that's ultimately going to depend on how much staffing they need. Right now, the GDP backdrop still remains quite robust. Labor market remains incredibly tight. Does that weaken incrementally? Perhaps. But I don't see that as being a, a huge catalyst in the story here. As Patrick, companies just, try to manage just to market. jump in, because I think this is really important. I know that companies don't base what they need to supply the company with based on what's happening in the equity market, but I would say some of the C-suite right now, they are worse at calling their own company than some people are on this show calling this market. And that's been the problem. These companies have set themselves up for the demand of last year, and it's not there anymore. We saw that with Target. We saw that with Walmart. We saw it with Amazon. Patrick, we've got some stuff to work through here. Don't you agree? I, I do think we agree, and I think there's areas of the market that are particularly under pressure. Uh, discretionary is, is an area that's probably going to be weaker. I think technology is an area that's going to be weaker as well. I think investors need to be selective in, in where they look at the opportunities for companies. I mean, we're, we're investing, uh, we're encouraging investors to look at cyclical-oriented companies like energy, materials, industrials, uh, things that benefit more from this backdrop and are less exposed uh, to some of the issues that are happening perhaps with technology and, and, and with some of the issues with the consumer at the moment. Great to catch up, Patrick. As always, to get your Patrick, view, your perspective. You. And send our best to Jonathan as well. Patrick Palfrey there of Credit Suisse. This should be a three-hour discussion. His ability 
in our international relations, linked to our economy, is formidable with his work at Goldman Sachs International for years. Robert Hormatz joins us now with Tideman Advisor and, of course, his service to the nation in the State Department. Ambassador Hormatz, I want to cut to the chase right now. I am hearing in every interview we will see a defense build-out by Germany. We will see a defense build-out by the United States of America. The president waltzes off to the Pacific Rim. What do we need to rebuild in the Pacific to show the flag in an appropriate manner? Well, two things. One, I'm glad he's doing this now because I think there was a feeling in the Pacific, in some countries at least, that we were so preoccupied with Ukraine and Europe that we had more or less forgotten about the Pacific. This trip will demonstrate that we have not forgotten and that we realize that it's important. Second, he's got to get this set of alliances organized. And there's been a lot of talk about cooperation, coordination, but there really hasn't been much progress on, on trade. Um, the cooperation between the United States, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, um, are, are all, all of these are important. And he has got to demonstrate that this is a sustainable alliance. <clears throat> right. Pulling out of TPP was one of the worst possible things we could have done because it showed not only a trade set of actions that was a pulling back, right. but it showed that we okay. really were not committed to a sustained Ambassador, I want to get through this quickly because Lisa's got some really important questions away from this. This is your wheelhouse. All Republicans and Democrats are against TPP. My guess is they're against Indo-Pacific. Let's go granular to the reported victory of Marcos Jr. in the Philippines and what we do at Subic Bay and at Clark. How do we shift our modern behavior back to what you and I knew in our ute? This is a critically important point. There, the, the way to look at Asia is there are two uh, island chains. One is the one that's very close to China. The Chinese really have uh, increased their domination over that with their small islands and their new Air Force bases that they put in. We have to demonstrate that we have credibility in that so-called second island chain, which is the Philippines, uh, which is the Marianas, Guam, and um, Australia, New Zealand. We have to show that we are strong, a strong presence there. And working with the Philippines, which is critically important, uh, it was in World War II, it, it is now, and that's going to be, uh, I think, extremely important to demonstrate that we can work with young Marcos and, and develop yeah. our base structure, which was... Uh, as, as you know, virtually uh, eliminated. Bob, how optimistic are you uh, that the political noise will be able to dovetail the national security issues of shifting around some trade partnerships at a time when inflation is very much at the forefront and people are more concerned about how quickly prices are rising as a result, in part at least, for some of the supply chain disruptions and realignments? A very good point. I mean, the president's in a difficult spot. On one hand, it is clear that a lot of the tariffs that we've imposed on China do contribute. They're not the main contributing factor, but they do contribute to higher prices in the United States. And yet, if the president were to appear to be weak on that, it would look like he was weak on, on China. 
the priority here, it seems to me, is to deal with the inflationary issues. We can demonstrate that we're still resolute on China by strengthening our alliances in the region, which gives the president more flexibility to lower some of the tariffs on China, which really have not had any impact on China anyway, but certainly have had an impact on prices in certain sectors in the United States. So if he's if he's tough enough and firm enough in building our alliances, it gives him a little more wiggle room to take action to reduce uh, tariffs on certain Chinese items. And he needs to develop these trade relationships that we uh, threw away when we got out of TPP. He's got to resurrect those and make sure that we don't just talk about them, that we have a firm and, and sustain a uh, program of trade cooperation with uh, these countries in the Indo-Pacific. Bob, just real quick here, we just have a, a little bit of time left. What grade would you give this administration in terms of reaffirming some of these alliances? I give them very high marks. I think the fact the president now in the middle of what's going on in Europe is making a major trip to Asia is, is going to be very important. There's going to be a G20 meeting coming up whether he goes is not clear, but I think that anything he can do to demonstrate with these friends and allies in the region um, that we're back and credible is, is important. The one thing he also has to do is make sure that he can get uh, bipartisan support for sustaining this, because a lot of these countries well, say, well, Biden's going out there doing this, making this good trip, but if the House flips, and if you get another administration a couple of years from now, that could pull back right. from our commitment alliances in the region. So we have to show, A, not only that we're doing this and we're, and we're firm in doing it, but B, this is a sustainable proposition. Robert Forman. And C, we've got to figure out how to deal with the Chinese issues that, that really matters. Right. These tariffs really have no real impact on China. Yeah. There has to be other stuff, which is particularly intellectual property, right. trade secrets, and a wide Amb range of other Ambassador, I don't mean to interrupt. We are out of time. We will continue this discussion. Robert Hormuz, they're particularly strong in the Pacific Rim with Tideman Advisors. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight. From the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.